My name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here. And today I'm excited because we are beginning a new series uh, entitled Kiss the Sun. And uh, this series is a journey through the first 25 psalms. You can see on the handy-dandy series slide. Um, and the, the title for this series, Kiss the Sun, comes from the second psalm. And Mike's going to be speaking of that next week. But that, that phrase, kiss the sun, um, is speaking of Christ. And the aim of this series is to see Christ in the psalms. Now, why, why would we make a series on the book of Psalms all about Jesus? Well, that's just the type of thing we would do here at Grace Life. But uh, really, we find that answer by taking a look at the, the New Testament first. So we begin our journey through the book of Psalms by looking at the words of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who tells us what the Psalms are actually all about. So we're going to look here real quick at Luke twenty four forty four. And I think what we're going to see is that the Psalms are not just simply poems and songs of worship, though they indeed are that. Uh, they're not just that. In Luke twenty four forty four, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus points out here that the Psalms and really all of the Old Testament were pointing to him. They were pointing to Christ. Now, to our detriment, when we look at the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament as simply um, just some rules for us to follow, um, just uh, a couple of do's and don'ts, you know, a checklist of things that we need to get right, uh, we actually harm ourselves. If we can look at this book and say, well, if I just do some of these things, I'll be righteous. Um, I won't be like the wicked that the book of the Psalms often talks about. If I just fulfill these regulations and these rules, I'm going to be all right. We harm ourselves. Because the problem is that we will continually, time after time, fall short in our efforts to do those things. We won't be able to measure up to the righteousness that the, the book of Psalms and the, book of the, Old Test, the books of the Old Testament call for. The true purpose of all of the Old Testament is to point to the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone could do these things. The Bible shows us that we cannot do the very things it demands. Only Jesus could. John 5.39 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The entirety of scripture is about Christ. Alistair Begg, a pastor in Ohio, says, The Bible is a book about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the gospel, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is expected. And it just so happened, uh, I was looking at Instagram the other day. Um, well, actually, no, it was this morning when wake up bright and early or dark and early because the sun's not quite out yet. Um, and you're spinning your wheels looking at Instagram. I saw uh, one of the accounts that I follow actually posted that quote that I had already included in my message. So I was like, oh, nice. It's almost like God had a hand in it or something. I don't know. But the message of the Bible is the story of God redeeming people, dead in their sin, 
through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament is not somehow separate uh, in, in you know, the grand story of redemption. It's all pointing to Christ. And then you have the New Testament, which tells what happened when Jesus came and then explains what happened when Jesus came. And then we look at the book of Revelation and we see that he's going to come again. And all of this should heighten our love for the word and for a book such as Psalms. It is poetic. It is beautiful. And guys like Nate and myself spend our time looking at the book of Psalms and writing lots of songs. But it's ultimately all about Jesus. And before we get too far, I do want to mention something special today. It's Nate Carey's birthday. I told him happy birthday today, and he said, oh, you know? (laughs) So happy birthday, Nate. So yes, the book of Psalms is poetic and it's beautiful, but let's remember that it's all about Jesus. And by embracing what it's truly about, we can have a deeper love and appreciation for it and the rest of God's word. Now, I love looking at um, what the, the reformers would say about books of the Bible, and I found this quote as I was studying. Uh, the early reformers had a saying that they would, they would say often about the book of Psalms. Uh, Because the book of Psalms back in more ancient days was far more important to the life of the church, I think, than it is today. Um, But they had this saying, always a psalm in the mouth, always Christ in the heart. So the psalms predict and foretell of the coming Messiah, as we'll see in the coming weeks as we look through uh, the first 25 psalms for this series. And by the way, just a heads up, we will uh, take a break at some point. I think it's after the 10th Psalm. We'll take a break and do um, kind of a topical series in between uh, to give a little break there. But as we look through these 25 Psalms, we'll see uh, some of the Psalms as well that Jesus would quote during his ministry here on earth, showing his fulfillment of them. The Psalms also remind us of the promises of God of an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. We who are on this side of the work of the cross know that that eternal king is Jesus. Now, broadly speaking, the Psalms are a heart cry of God's people in times of praise, lament, in need of help, in need of forgiveness, and much more. And on that note, I just want to mention we often shy away from ideas of lament, from songs of lament, or uh, feeling like we can't lament or be sad over things, mourn over things. I think the book of Psalms gives us permission to lament over the things that we experience. But by seeing and savoring Christ in the Psalms, we will find that it is Christ himself who answers these heart cries by providing all that we need. He knows the depths of lament by having suffered great agony on the cross as he purchased the forgiveness of our sins. His substitutionary work of salvation gives us reason to praise. It's the ultimate reason to praise. And though we are lawbreakers, he was not. He fulfilled the law, and now we are also seen by God as law keepers by being in Christ, united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms. And so we can read this book through the lens of the gospel and rejoice. 
So who wrote the book of Psalms? Well, ultimately, we can say that it's the Holy Spirit who wrote the book of Psalms. Uh, but he used a variety of authors to do so. About half were written by David, uh, 73 of which are directly attributed to him in the subscription of the psalm. And a couple others were likely written by him. Um, tradition holds that he was the author. Other authors include the sons of Korah, Asaph, um, Solomon, and Moses. And some psalms just don't identify the author. These individual psalms were collected into what eventually became the Book of Psalms, which is actually a collection of five books put together uh, sometime after the exile to Babylon. So during this series, we'll take a psalm each week from Psalm 1 to Psalm 25. So this morning, we're looking at Psalm 1, next week, Psalm 2, and so on. Psalm 1 and 2 really could be taken together as a unit. So I'm sorry, Mike, I'm actually going to talk about Psalm 2. I'm stealing your, your thunder. No, next week, Mike will be speaking on Psalm 2. Uh, there are some scholars who believe that these two psalms are indeed just one psalm. Uh, some ancient rabbinical teachings taught them as one psalm. Uh, and in some uh, ancient writings, when Jesus referred to Psalm 2 uh, in one of the Gospels, they actually attribute it as Psalm 1. These two psalms are considered a gateway to the book of Psalms. So our understanding of these first two psalms will frame how we view the entire book of psalms. See, the book of psalms is not really meant to be read um, much as we typically read it, much like how I typically read it, which is, oh, Psalm 103, I'll read that today. That's, that's my favorite psalm. I love that psalm. That actually is my favorite psalm. Um, so I go and grab my Bible and I read Psalm 103. Um, it, it is progressive. It, it is supposed to uh, lead us through a journey. So... Again, that's one of the reasons why we're looking at it 1 through 25, and we're going to go 1, 2, 3, and so on. These first two psalms will frame the remaining psalms. So let's dig into Psalm 1. And uh, before we read that, why don't we pray? That, that was just the introduction. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful book that you've given to us, the book of Psalms. I ask as we journey through it that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us. But most of all, I ask that you would reveal Christ to us uh, in this book, that we would see and save our Christ in the book of Psalms. I just ask that you would bless us this morning, open our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 1, we'll read, there's only six verses in this psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, Excuse me, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, first, let's look at the righteous man. We see this righteous man in the first three verses of this psalm. Now, it would be easy to read this text in a moralistic way, kind of with a checklist of things to do and not to do. I mean, we very clearly see, you know, righteous man does not do these things. But as I've already said, it would be to our detriment to read it this way. 
uh, as simply just some morals that if we do these things, it will go well for us. We need to look at this psalm through the lens of the gospel. If our default is to see ourselves in Scripture primarily and you know, foremost, then we need to reorient ourselves in how we approach uh, Scripture and how we approach reading the Psalms. In order to see ourselves properly, first we must look at Christ. We must see Christ, and then we can properly see ourselves uh, through these, these Psalms and through the Scripture. In verse 1, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man. Now this man is not ultimately you or I. This man is ultimately Jesus. As George Robertson points out in the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible, Jesus is anticipated in the first word of this psalm because blessing in Scripture references the redemptive presence of God. This idea of this blessed man from the very first word is pointing to Christ and his redemptive presence. And when we look at these first three verses of this psalm, we see the righteous man. And we see what this righteous man doesn't do. The psalmist says that the righteous man walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. When the Bible speaks of walking, it's talking about our manner of life, how we order our life. It's a metaphor. We see in these three verses kind of, well, really the first verse right here, we see kind of a digression, uh, if you will, walking, standing, sitting. They're all speaking metaphorically of the ways of the wicked. The righteous man does not do these things. And as I was reading this, it kind of reminded me of the story of Lot. Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. And then he moved into the city. And before long, he was sitting with the men of Sodom at the gate. And in ancient times, sitting at the gate uh, was a sign Uh, that you are invested in that city. You are one of the elders of that city. That's where they would sit and debate the topics of the day. We see in verse 2 that the righteous man delights in the law. This isn't just speaking of the Ten Commandments, but really of all the instruction of the Lord. This righteous man not only follows it, but he delights in it. It's his desire And then in verse 3, it speaks of a tree being planted by the water. Now, on the surface of that, you might think, uh, as you see a tree planted by water bearing fruit, you might think of abundance and, and having success and prosperity. We might think that this righteous man is one who has uh, it all together and is prospering in all of his ways. But as we read this, and if you're like me, by the time you finish reading verses 1 through 3, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, I I have not lived like this, at least not perfectly. Perhaps you read this and think, yeah, I do pretty good with this, actually. I I don't sit with the wicked. But the problem is, is that there is no pretty good. There's only righteous and wicked. And ultimately, there's only one man who has been perfect in all his ways. Only one man who has kept himself from the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, and the seat of the scoffers. And there's only one man who has ever fully delighted in the law of God, who was truly planted like this tree. And that man is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who fits the bill of this righteous man. 
And the gospel tells us, though we have not been the righteous man, Jesus has actually invited us into this life. He's invited us into his righteousness. When you were born again, receiving the forgiveness of your sins, you were united with him. You were baptized into Christ, and you received his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we now find our identity in Christ, and we have been clothed with his righteousness. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as I said earlier, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really could be taken as one unit, as one psalm. Um, And we see at the end of Psalm 2 in verse 12 that we are actually called or invited in to take refuge in Christ. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The righteous man, Jesus, is our refuge. He calls his own to him, and in him we are made righteous as he is righteous. So if you're looking for how to become righteous, how to become the righteous man spoken of in Psalm 1, it's only found in taking refuge in the only true righteous man, Jesus. It's through the gospel that we are planted like a tree. A tree doesn't plant itself. You know, either the seed falls and uh, eventually sprouts and a new tree grows, or a gardener plants it. But a tree doesn't like willfully fall into soil and be like, yep, this is a nice cozy spot. This is where I'm going to grow. A tree is planted. And God has planted us firmly on Christ. The streams of water flowing to us is the grace of God made available to us by the gospel of grace. And the fruit is the fruit the Holy Spirit produces in us. It's his fruit. In all of this, we see that it's a work of grace. God giving all that we need in Christ Jesus to live. To live for him. To live uh, as the righteous man. To be seen as the righteous man. God is the one who is working this in us. Therefore, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, which we just read, we can boast in Christ. Now, there is wisdom here for our life as believers as well. There is wisdom in scriptures like this, though we must recognize that first and foremost, scripture is given to us to point to Christ. As we are growing in Christ... The fruit of the Holy Spirit is being produced in us. Though the flesh and the spirit will continue to war, we will be out of place in the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, the seed of the scoffers, because that is no longer who we are. That is who we were. We will desire to be with God's children and grow together in grace. We'll hunger for his word and will delight in the instruction of God meditating on his word day and night. And not just delighting in the written word, but the incarnate word, Jesus himself. These things will happen more and more for the believer who is planted in the rich soil of God's grace. Because Christ is alive in us. 
These things we are encouraged unto are the fruit of the Spirit, which can only be produced by His Spirit. Now, I recognize that we will probably struggle with these things, and we will see a lack of them in our lives. Or if you're married, maybe your spouse will often point to the lack of them in your life. And that's okay. The answer in that situation is not for you to try harder. To maybe knuckle down a little bit and and do more. Try harder at being righteous. The answer is to believe the gospel. Live in the righteousness of Christ. Dig deep roots in the soil of his grace. And watch that fruit grow. We must recognize, though, as we're reading this uh, from this psalm, that there is another side to this. And that's the path of the wicked. We see that in verses 4 through 6. The wicked. It says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff in that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Webster's Dictionary describes chaff as the husks of grains and grasses separated from the seed in threshing. Something worthless. In threshing... The grain, uh, the, sh- the chaff will be separated from the seed, and the wind would blow it away. And in ancient times, they would use, uh, you know, these various, like, not baskets, but uh, threshing. You can tell I work a lot in, in a garden. Um, but these little things, the trays uh, for threshing, and they would, you know, shake them and, and shake the seed, and eventually the chaff would break away and be blown away. But thankfully, at some point in time, we invented something that was a little bit better, uh, and that was called, oh, man, what was it? The, fan, the fanning thresher or something like that, uh, the fanning mill. And, you know, again, I don't know a lot about this stuff. In fact... It wasn't until yesterday that I even saw one of these devices, and I happened to grab my phone and make a little video. So this is what it looks like when a fanning mill is at work. Twenty seconds of threshing. So they would dump the, um, you know, whatever grain that you are harvesting into the top of this. It's also known as a Dutch mill because the Dutch invented it. Yeah, I know these things now. Pretty much an expert. And uh, as as it would thresh the grain, uh, it would separate the the uh, seed or the the grain from from the rest of it, and this. This is some chaff that was left over, and I'm going to make a mess, but it's okay. I'll vacuum it later. That would just kind of fall away, and if it was windy, which is obviously not windy in here, that would float. It would just kind of float away. Now, this guy that was giving the demonstration of this at the Genesee Country Village Museum, I always mess up the name, but I think that's what it's called, also had a pretty large tray, not like they would have had in biblical times, but he kind of tossed some of the grain up and showed us what that would look like. But again, there wasn't really any wind blowing, so it, we didn't get to see like how the chaff would just blow, driven by the wind. But you know, just in holding some of this stuff, I can see just how light it is. It wouldn't take much wind for that to just kind of float away and blow away. And at the end of it, he showed us, you know, this little pile of the seed that was left over as it had separated. You know, the the heavier seed would fall, and that's what you were after. 
Really cool invention. So in threshing the grain, the the chaff would be separated from the seed and the wind would blow it away. And here we see in this, this passage the wicked described as chaff driven by the wind. The wicked are aimless. They're wandering, driven by their passions. As the wind takes the the chaff and blows it around, the chaff obviously has no control of where it's going. It's just driven by the wind. It reminds me of the parable of the two houses that Jesus shared, where one house was built on the rock and the other built on the sand. When the storm came, the house that was built on sand collapsed. The wicked are not like a tree planted by the water. They're not like a house built on the rock of Jesus Christ. The wicked are like chaff driven by the wind. They're like the house built on the sand. The Bible is quite clear. There is no in-between. There is righteous and there is wicked. There's not, I see the law of God and I'm attempting to live better. We all fall short. We all sin. There is a path of life and a path of destruction. Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew twenty five thirty one through 33, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, And he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. We see in verse 5 of Psalm 1 that the wicked will face God's judgment and be excluded from the righteous. But there's good news today. Jesus died for the wicked. None of us were born as the righteous. We needed to be rescued from our wickedness. We needed to be rescued from the destruction that awaited. And so God sent Jesus to die as the substitute for you, as your substitute. If you're hearing this today and you recognize that you too are one of the wicked, the good news of Jesus Christ is that today the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Believe in Christ and what he did to pay for your sins. And be clothed in his righteousness. There's grace for you today. For the Christian, my brothers and sisters, Jesus has changed you from the wicked to the righteous. So there's assurance for you today. Rest in Christ. He has saved you and made you his own. You're clothed in his righteousness. So even if you read Psalm 1 and see that you still fall short in living like the righteous man described... I remind you that you are in Christ who has lived it perfectly. You are clothed with his righteousness. And as a tree that's planted by the water receives the nutrients it needs to bear fruit, remember that he is working in you and through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's working in you. He's creating uh, these desires in your heart. And this psalm ends by saying, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows your way. He knows your past disappointments. He knows your future disappointments. He knows your your struggles and your successes. 
He knows your heart's cry. And there's great comfort in knowing that he knows his own. The way to prosper, the way to life, is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, who is the righteous man. And as our brother Tom McArdle uh, recently posted on Facebook about this very psalm, and quote him here, he says, Finally, since Christ now dwells in our hearts by faith, we are walking and will walk more and more, just as this psalm describes, because it is no longer we who live, but Christ in us. I encourage you to live in this freedom that Christ has purchased for you. Jesus is alive and he lives in you. Take refuge in the king. Take refuge in the righteous man. Now throughout the book of Psalms, we see that the response of God's people is a response of praise. Whether in a time of lament or a time of hope, we respond in praise. We have much to celebrate this morning in what Christ has done. We can praise the righteous man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the righteous man, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, by which he has purchased our salvation. He has purchased the righteousness that we could never work on our own. And he grants it to us freely. Father, I ask that if there's anyone here who has not yet believed the good news, that you would grant them faith and repentance to believe uh, the gospel, to believe what your son has done. Plant them like a tree by the water, that they would receive your grace. Father, as we go from here this morning, I ask that we would continue to bear fruit that you've already provided for us to, to produce through your Holy Spirit, the works that you've called us to before time, that we would walk in those works. We thank you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.